Well, I am glad we can be together. Thank you, Mike, for praying for us. Thank you, Ryan, for helping us see kind of what's ahead here, despite the fact that just so we're all on the same tape, on the same page, we couldn't quite find the camera to take the pictures today. So Ryan was right. He just didn't have the last little bit of up-to-date information. And up-to-date information helps sometimes. So there we are. One other piece of up-to-date information. We were going to be uh, kind of continuing our time of praying last week for the persecuted church. We were going to hear from the Semples about what's going on in Nepal and have our missions moment kind of as a part of our announcements. But I, was, uh, I called Barb up this morning and said, you know, with the passage that we're reading, it seems like it would be really fitting for us to have our text launch us into that announcement. And so Barb, uh, Barb thought that was a good idea too. But I guess when the pastor calls you up and says, do you think this is a good idea? It's hard to say no. So I hope it was, it was good, but we're, we're going to do that. I'm going to uh, give you a little bit of the backdrop as we finish up Mark 12 and we think about what's, um, what's really happened from the triumphal entry on and try to understand the significance of this moment because um, what, what Sophia read for us from Mark is the last of three stories we're going to look at here that wrap up chapter 12. And chapter 12, essentially, um, is going to be the last time we'll be in Mark for a little while. Next Sunday, we're going to take some time deliberately to have a Thanksgiving service. And so I want to invite you already to start thinking. I had to hold Beth off one week. Beth Gingrey came and said, I have something I want to tell you I'm thankful for and I want to tell the church about. I said, that's good. Wait seven days. Because that's what we're doing next week. She was glad to hold off. But it, it spurs you on as well. We want to really have a time of testimony next Sunday where we're able to think about what God has done over this last year and to corporately give him credit for it and extend our gratitude, not just in a way that we're feeling it, but that we can express it. Because it, it honors him. It stirs us up as well to gratitude. So we're going to take a, a deliberate time for that next Sunday, the 20th. Then on the 27th and on, we are going to do a little bit more deliberate look at Advent. We usually do some things. We have candles and and that sort of thing. Um, But we are going to take our our entire services and dedicate them to each of the Advent themes as we make our way up to Christmas. So we'll have a week dedicated to hope, to joy, to peace, to love. And then Christmas morning, our cozy Christmas morning, we will be on our fifth candle. And so that'll start the following. And then in January, we're going to spend some time in the Psalms. As we normally do, we try to start the, the new year out, most years, with an extended look in the Psalms. And I want you to know that has nothing to do with the fact that Mark 13 is a really daunting text to preach. Um, there's a little bit of mutual beneficial, you know, kind of strategy in it. It's going to give the pastor a little bit while, a little bit longer to think about the temple, the destruction of the temple, and how all of that relates to the end times. We'll get there in February. So this is going to be our last little look at Mark for a while. That's the schedule that's coming up. But with that in mind, let me just remind us one more time where we've been as we're kind of getting into the end of, uh, of Mark. You remember, Jesus came in, looked around, cleansed the temple, right? By such, he really offended a lot of people. And so they asked him right in the beginning, eleven twenty-six through twelve twelve, who gave you this authority to do this? Jesus answered by giving them a parable that indicted them and told them that they were guilty of uh, really usurping the authority of the king who owned 
the temple, which was in that particular case compared to a vineyard. Remember that. Right after that, there were then some trick questions, and we took them out of order, but the three of them were, hey, should we pay taxes? Designed to stump Jesus. It didn't work. The second, whose wife will she be? Remember, we looked at that with the Sadducees, and they were asking the question about the resurrection, trying to show Jesus that he was ridiculous to hold this idea. He basically told them that they were ignorant. And then what we looked at two weeks ago when the kids were in, which rule is the best? And by the time Jesus had gotten done, verse 34 read like this, and after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And so you'd think that with Jesus' time of being quizzed over, Mark 12 would end, right? And they would leave the temple. And that would be all that Mark would want to tell us. It's just that, as Jesus has done pretty much every one of these times, he's about to really ask a few questions of his own. Jesus is going to turn the tables on those that have been questioning him. And now he has a couple things he wants to ask everyone. Really, the third scene is the one that Sophia read for us. But there are two more before that, because very much like if I were talking to Jace in our kitchen, most of the conversations go something like this. Hey, Jace, here's the food we're going to make, and this is going to be pretty good to eat. And he said, you know, Dad, that does sound good to eat, but that's not what I'm going to eat. And it's not because he's finicky. It's that he has a particular goal in mind, and he's decided there are certain things I'm not going to eat, and there are certain things I am going to eat. I won't describe for you what he does with chicken and tuna because that doesn't always seem all that appealing to me. But I will say, relatively speaking, the results in Jason, the results in his dad, are kind of, you know, they, they play out. Dad looks like he eats for uh, enjoyment and Jace is beginning to look like he eats for health. And I want to say, good job, Jace. There's a certain sense of Jace coming in and saying, Dad, we don't eat that, we eat this. In fact, there's a whole book you can buy that's entirely called that. Eat this, not that. If you're going to go out to fast food, eat this, not this. If you're going to Olive Garden, eat this, not that. And what Sophia read for us is sort of Jesus going, this is what you want to eat. But the stuff that happens a little bit before that is the other side of the coin. It's Jesus saying, yeah, but not that. It's not just that there's something to commend in this woman who's giving something who would never be commended in any other context. It's also that Jesus is saying, hey, before we leave church, let's think about what we do. And there's some stuff I want to condemn, and there's stuff that I want to commend. The first thing Jesus is going to do, though, is to show us that kind of, so we're just going to take this text sort of that way. What do we ought to do when we come to church? Because in Jesus' context, this is the last stuff he's going to do before verse thir- or chapter 13 starts and says he left the temple. So this is Jesus kind of, in Mark at least, final little bit of instruction. And the first thing Jesus, I think, wanted them to know and that he wants us to know is that when we come to church, what we ought to do is we should listen to what Jesus teaches. That's really our first point. Let's go a couple verses before and look. Remember, verse 34, nobody asks him any more questions. And so Jesus decides to ask a question. And that's how the verse 35 starts. He says the following, or Mark says the following. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes 
say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, that seems a pretty good question, and it might not necessarily mean something to us right out of the gate, right? So, just so we're all aware, and so we can kind of review some of our terminology, the Christ is not a last name, just like you wouldn't say that Darren is the lander. Darren Lander is my name. You might say, though, Darren Lander, the pastor, or Darren Lander, the father, or Darren Lander, the landowner, if you came to my house. It, my role depends somewhat on the, you know, the way that we're looking at who I am, right? You could say that Jesus, at some points in his life, was the carpenter. You could say that he was Jesus, the son of this person, the son of that person, the son of that person, if you think about his lineage. You could say he was the son of Mary. But in this particular case, they're asking, Jesus is asking something about a different role, and it's the role called the Christ. That translates to another word that we know, the, the Messiah, or it's actually vice versa. The Messiah translates as the Christ. But essentially, it's good to know that kind of like when we were talking about the scribes, that wasn't necessarily a group. It was more like a job. Christ is, is that way as well. So Jesus is saying, how can the scribes, those lawyers, talk about the Christ, the Messiah, the, the anointed one who's coming to save, and how can they say that that anticipated Savior is the son of David? Now, that question is timely in that it kind of like that whole question about the resurrection. It hit on some hot buttons that were probably a little bit more pertinent for them than are normally pertinent for us. That was one of the things they'd talk about. This is one of the questions they'd talk about. But then Jesus throws the sort of the, the wrench into it too. And he says, because here's the problem. Verse 36. David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Okay. So, just so you know, he's quoting a psalm. That's Psalm 110. Let's read it. Here it is. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Same concept. But what you notice is that that is a psalm of David. That psalm is attributed to David. And the point Jesus is going to make has a lot to do with chronology. Remember the point Jesus made about the resurrection had everything to do with the tense of a verb, a linking verb at that? When God said, I am the God of people who've already died, what does that indicate? He's not saying something about who he was. He's saying who he is. That means those people must still be around as long as God is around, hence resurrection, right? The whole point was built off the tense of the verb. This point is built off of chronology. See, what? there's a psalm written in the past, right? David is not around anymore. And so the scribes in Jesus' day are looking back and saying, the one who's to come is related to this guy in the past. That's why we're calling him a son of David. He's in the line of David, meaning he's from David in the past out into the future, Right? But here's the problem Jesus highlights. David, in the past, is looking to the past and saying something about the Messiah, who it seems is supposed to be, in the scribes' day, still coming. And Jesus is talking about, but David said this had already taken place. Right? Because, again, look at the way that Psalm 110 is written. 
Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Okay, who's talking to whom? Well, we've got this, and we'll skip a slide for a sec there, Isaac, and then we'll go back. We've got God, the Lord, and when, because this doesn't always translate out exactly right, you've got a Lord kind of name that's more like a title. That's usually written L, lowercase O-R-D. It's just so that the people who are translating this out can help us see. This isn't the big Lord. This is a Lord. Sometimes the Lord, still referring to a title in a deity sense, but when we're talking about the proper name of God, the name that just doesn't get used as a noun in any other contexts, what we get is the word Lord, but it's all written in capitals. And that's, that's the way it's written here, right? Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's referring to God, clearly. And David in the past is saying, he says to my Lord. In other words, in David's time, this is somebody who already existed, Right? But the scribes are saying that this Messiah is going to be someone to come. You see the dilemma that Jesus is pointing out? From David's perspective, the Messiah has already come. He already existed by the time David was writing this psalm. And yet now, hundreds of years later, the scribes are looking and saying, that same Messiah, that Christ, is one who's going to come into the future. So Jesus is asking a question. What does that mean? It clearly means that this person has to be somebody different than David, right? Or any of David's sons. It can't just be that the Messiah would be limited to human chronology and the way that you're reproduced. Because then there's no way that David would be able to say, one of my future descendants is somebody we're already talking about in the past. See how chronology kind of makes Jesus' argument? Jesus is essentially saying, the scribes are right. He's to come. But David was right. He already existed. What I think this means for them is that they really want Jesus, or Jesus really wants them to pay attention, not to the simplistic way that they've been reading the Bible, but to understand that so much of the Old Testament that they had categorized actually had so much more importance that was going to be related to him than they really wanted to give credit for. Up till the end of Mark 12, Jesus has done a good amount to say, if there's anybody who fits this category of somebody who's going to save in the future and somebody that seems to transcend time, somebody who's working in this day and age uh, according to the way that you understand things. I eat and I sleep and I'm like this. But I've got power over what you would think of as a normal human being. If anybody fit that category, it seems like maybe that might be Jesus. And yet Jesus is coming to those who are gathered at the temple who have been hearing Psalm 110 all the time and saying, boy, you guys have heard this for a long time and you've really missed something about me. Here's how that relates to us now. We need to be very careful the way we read the Bible. It's easy for us to take what God has intended us to understand from his word and to twist it around into a lot of things that fit what we think we're already good at. You ever do that? You read the Bible and you sort of feel uncomfortable at a certain point. You think... 
I'm not very good at that, so I'm not going to pay attention to that. But then you get on a few more verses and something hits you that you're like, yeah, that's my fastball. I think that's the most important part of what I've read today. We all tend to do that because we all want to feel good about ourselves. The Pharisees had done that. The Sadducees had done that. The Sanhedrin had done that. They had found a way to read the Bible in such a way that it built them up and it didn't convict them of anything. And now came along the living expression of the word, the fulfillment of all of the word, and they've been trying to do nothing but to destroy him. And so Jesus, before he's going to leave the temple, just says, hey, are you really honestly reading the Bible and allowing it to say what it says about me, no matter what it requires of you? And that's not a bad question for us to ask either. Because at the end, Jesus says in verse 37, David apparently calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And this is interesting, the way that they all respond. The great throng heard him gladly. I'm not sure if everybody around understood everything Jesus was saying as soon as he just put those things out. So here's an Old Testament text. It said this. David says, they say it's David's son. David says, this guy's my Lord. And the Lord was the one who told him all this from the beginning. What do you think about that? Yay, Jesus! I'm not positive everybody got everything because honestly, I've studied this for a while and I'm like, what are those? What's a massive amount of significance Well, I think what I'm mostly sort of affected by when I read this is I really need to be careful when I'm reading God's word. I need to be careful so that when I'm sitting down, I am letting God tell me exactly what he wants me to see about himself. And I don't want to back up from any of the ones. And in fact, the ones that make me feel a little bit more uncomfortable, those texts that call for something in me, those texts that really convict me, I want to lean into them and say, God, if if this was significant to you, I want it in this moment to be significant to me. And I think that this is significant as well because we see this passage used a lot in the New Testament. It's not just that Jesus, during his lifetime, here toward the end of his life, interprets Psalm 110, said, this was about me. That should really, you know, kind of get you thinking. And everybody's like, yeah. It's that everybody who was aware of Jesus doing this in the moment, they actually go back and refer to it. Let me give you a few examples. Right after Pentecost, when Peter's giving his speech, here's what Peter says. David did not ascend into the heavens But he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, the Savior. The one to rule and the one to save is this Jesus. So Peter, here's what Jesus says, remembers it. And at the moment when everybody's trying to understand this is really different, What is God doing in the church right now? What is this that's happened? Because we don't have categories for it. Peter says, oh, let me tell you about Psalm 110. Because that refers to Jesus in a way that should really change everything about how you understand the Bible and understand this one we're presenting to you. The author of Hebrews, I wish we kind of knew who this was. We just sort of have the book. We don't have anybody who's taking credit for it. But the author of Hebrews says this. For... To which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? And then a little later down, he says something else. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? 
Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve? This is right at the beginning of Hebrews when he's trying to introduce Jesus to them. And he says, you've revered all these sort of characters and entities from the Old Testament. And I want to show you how Jesus is superior to them. Here he's talking about angels and saying, if you give any sort of significance to angelic messengers, you ought to revere Jesus even more. Why? Psalm 110. Another example, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Then, talking about the resurrection, Paul says, Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Back again to Hebrews, later on in the book. Talking about Jesus' superiority, not just over angels or others, but the whole priesthood in general. He says, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which, he can, never, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. This is coming up over and over. Every time somebody is pointing out the significance of who Jesus is in the resurrection and explaining what happened at Pentecost and trying to say, when we look back over everything else you've claimed, Jesus is just better. Jesus is the one who makes sense of these things. What are they doing? They're going to Psalm 110 and they're saying, it's been about Jesus the whole time. They're writing scripture, yes. They were with Jesus when he said this, yes. But boy, is this an example for me that if we were to do a little bit better job actually studying the Bible rather than studying just what other people talk about the Bible, how much more might this come up in our conversations? How much more if we were willing to take God's word, think about what we've studied here together, and then ask, Lord, as I enter into this next week, you've just addressed us corporately together from your word, What is it you'd have me commit to memory? What is it you'd have me to respond to and to apply? What is it you want me to do in light of what you revealed? And I think as Jesus is trying to ask us, hey, when we come to church, first question is this, are we listening to what Jesus is actually teaching? I'll say this, when we read the rest of the New Testament from this point on, they were. And it made a real difference in the way they interacted, both with religious people and with non-religious people. A psalm as interesting and what you might think of as obscure as verse 1 of 110 comes up over and over. And what is it that they're saying? Well, remember the point we read about the shoe, right? Your shoe represents this place of authority for you. Michael and I were talking about this afterwards. In fact, this, this is really interesting. He sent me a, what was it, one week, two weeks ago, Mike? Okay, so um, there was at his seminary somebody who did a talk for all the other faculty on what the biblical theology of footwear, of Birkenstocks, something along those lines. A great little, uh, a great little uh, point. And he was even thinking, God comes, uh, he, he, he calls Moses to the bush. What does he say to Moses? Take off your, your feet because the, the ground you're on is holy ground thought of that all the time. Well, it's like coming into, you know, somebody else's house. I should take off my shoes because, you know, this is a really nice place that I'm in. Kind of. It's 
More with this significance of it, Moses is removing his shoes and walking in and saying, all authority belongs to you here. If feet have this connection to power, then what's being said about Jesus over and over and over is that there is no power, there is no authority that trumps his. He is the one who ought to be reigning. He must reign until all his enemies are under his feet because all of his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Over and over and over, the main message is nobody trumps Jesus. And because of that, X, Y, or Z. But where did that come from? It, come from, it came from those who were simply paying attention when Jesus spoke. Are we doing that? I will say, as the one who comes and opens, I realize how quickly I forget what we looked at the last week. I realize how easy it is for us to come and sit under the authority of God's word and Feel the weight of, oh, Lord, you've revealed something to me. Will I be any different because of this? On one hand, yes. Do I remember what I ate three weeks ago for dinner? Not really, but it was good, and it's kept me healthy, and it's kept me sustained and moving on. On the other hand, I want to make sure that when I'm being fueled by the word of God, that I'm actually doing something with the energy I've been given. I want to make sure that I don't come to listen to Jesus and sit before the mirror, as James calls it, of his word, see things about myself, and then walk away and do nothing about it. We all have this responsibility, I think, as Jesus is asking us, when you come to church, first, are are you listening to what's being taught? That's the first thing that we see here. The second thing that I think we want to do really comes to the end of not just this is what to eat, but this is what not to eat. We should also avoid what Jesus condemns. Verse 38, he says, in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Listen to what Jesus is condemning. He doesn't just say, beware of the scribes because those guys annoy me so much. Don't you just hate? And he goes and lists off all the scribes that have just been so annoying. No, he says, beware of the scribes, but not because of the individual people, but because of the practices that they represent. There is a hypocrisy that Jesus always opposes. And in fact, if you were to think mostly about where Jesus' animosity and opposition has been since he's entered Jerusalem, is it to the pagan world out there? It's not, is it? Most of Jesus' attention has been to the corruption of those who ought to be humble before God, but instead have desired to puff themselves up in front of other people, like these scribes. They want to be 
seen. So they have these long robes. They want to be received. And so Jesus is talking about how they love the special greetings. You've got special clothes. You've got a special greeting. You get, verse 39, the best seat in the synagogue, the place of honor at the feasts. These guys like to be seen as special. They like to be heard and received as special. And they like to be able to have the position of being special, of being honored. And then they use all of that not to build, but to kill. Not to help, but to hurt. It's the same language that God used when he was talking to Ezekiel and he was saying to Ezekiel, I've had these shepherds over my flock, my dear, precious flock, and I hired in these shepherds and I wanted them to take care of my sheep. And what did they do? They feasted on my sheep. I told them they were supposed to sacrifice so that my sheep could eat well. And instead, what did they do? They took and they slaughtered my sheep and then they devoured them themselves. Same language here. Those who have all the position and power and authority and prestige, they've used it to feed themselves rather than to feed others. And for a pretense... They use it to make these long prayers, the end of verse 40. Mark doesn't have as much detail about this. But Jesus has been really blunt in other cases. The whole Sermon on the Mount, if that's not coming to your mind, let me remind you of it. Chapter 5 is the beginning where Jesus turns the tables and sort of introduces this upside-down kingdom. Right? Here are all the people that are blessed. Here are all the people that you would think would be blessed that, that's not going to work out so well. Chapter 6, though, then he comes and he says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus is really, really clear that when we come to church, if these are our greatest moments of spirituality, if when we come to church, we put forward a version of ourselves that God wouldn't recognize when he met met us the rest of the week, if when we come to church, we're on our sort of best behavior, not so that we can encourage others, but so that others would encourage us because of what they see in us, there's something in that not only that we ought to avoid, but that Jesus condemns and therefore we ought to avoid. Jesus is looking at this way of living and saying at the end, verse 38, beware of the scribes. Here's all the reasons. Here's the conclusion. Their condemnation will be greater. They will receive the greater condemnation. This is a danger for us. It's a danger for the church in Nepal that we'll hear about. It's not just a danger for us. If you were to leave us and go to another church, it would still be a danger for you there. But it's not just a danger for us when we're like this. I think sometimes it's even a danger for us when we're just in one-on-one conversations. One of the dangers for me is that I get to create narratives. 
people ask me questions about how things went, and I get to tell stories about it. And usually, they believe my version of it. You know how self-centered that power can be? Because I can tell stories, and other people can be villains. And I can tell stories, and I can be the hero. And I will receive greater condemnation for doing that. Because I'm just being the hypocrite in this story. I'm so worried about how I'm seen. And so we want to make sure in every way, when we've got comparable power, that we are aware of comparable danger. Any opportunity we've got to be seen, rather than to hide what is hide what's best about us. Not so that, like Jesus said in other places in the Sermon on the Mount, your, your light will shine before others and they'll thank God. But we should avoid trying to shine so that others see us shining and thank us. Impressed with us. Worship us. If we would glow at all, let us be like the moon where it's somebody else's glory we're reflecting not thinking that we're the source of anything that would be impressive. All of that leads to the greater condemnation. So let's just go back through this just real briefly. Let me just ask. When you come, when you put on your clothes, you come to this time. How worried are you about how you're seen? When you leave and you recount what happened in a, in a Christian gathering, how worried are you about how you were received because they liked wrong, long robes and they liked how they were greeted. When you come and you're reflecting on things, how much do you look for a position of honor, a conversational position of honor, a position of honor? I'm not sure exactly what the honorable seats are here, but maybe you've got yours. But how much do we look to be best and honored? And how much does it bother us whenever we're not? or when we're passed over, or when others are? Do we come to Christian gatherings aware that we can give somebody else something to eat, or do we come to consume and to devour? Do we come to pray because we want to be a part of of lifting these concerns before the Lord, and we know he's going to hear us, and so it's just an honor to pray together, or are we so worried about what we're saying that when somebody else is praying, we're not even listening anymore? I don't think these are just my danger. They might be, in which case, pray for me, and praise God you don't struggle with it. But given the fact that this is a struggle for all of us, what do we do? Remember what Sophia read. Because it's not just that Jesus is saying, avoid what I'm condemning. He's then saying, but be like her. If you struggle with any of this, let me give you an example to follow. It's not just don't eat this. It's here's something. This would be healthy. And this is the last point. We should honor what Jesus commends. And so he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, and you have to wonder how many other times had those in the temples been paying attention to what was going on over there. 
How many other times had this loud collection been, been drawing people's attention? How many other rabbis had been in a setting like this, had seen giving happening and called their disciples together and said, I want you to notice what's going on over there. How many other times had the rich been applauded? How many other times had their generosity really been marveled at? How many others had received commendation? And so Jesus in similar fashion says, hey, let's go look over here at something that's happening with the offering plate. I want you to see this. Truly, Jesus says in verse 43, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who were contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty. They all contributed out of abundance, but she contributed from a lack of abundance. They all gave because they had a lot. She gave, but she didn't have a lot. And she's put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. This is why I asked Mike to read the passage from 2 Samuel. What he started reading came when a prophet came to David and said, I want you to buy this piece of ground and I want you to turn it into an altar. And so David goes. He goes to the man who owns it and says, I want, to, I want this. I, why are you here? Well, I'm here to turn your, your land into an altar for the Lord. And the man, out of his nothing, says, yeah, it's all yours. Where will, where will he thresh his wheat anymore? Where will he do his work? Where will he earn a living? He doesn't care. He just says, this is yours. David interacting with the poor. There's another time David had interacted with the poor. Remember when another prophet came to David? Let me tell you a story. There was a man who had a ton of sheep. And he had a guest coming over to his house. A rich, wealthy man. And if you're thinking of the VeggieTales song right now, you're on the right track. There once was a man. And he has a guest and he needs to kill one of his sheep and he doesn't. Instead, he goes to the man who's very poor, steals his pet sheep, slaughters it, and feeds the guest. He offers something that cost him nothing and butchered what was most precious. And David is rightly angered. Hearing this story, David is bothered because the poor should never be expected to give everything. Those who have little should never have to lose it, right? This is the American way, right? Those who have little, what do we like hearing? We like how, hearing how they took a little and they turned it into a little more. And then they took that little more and they turned it into a little more and later they owned the whole company. Yeah, that's the story we're looking for. And Jesus says, no, I want to tell you the story of the woman who had not had that done to her. It wasn't though some rich man didn't want to put any money into the offering plate. So he came to the widow and said, give me your mites. Give me your two penny. Give me your copper coins. I'm going to throw them in. That's what David did. That's what David had done in the past. 
But it isn't just as though this woman had it stolen from her. She gave it. Like the owner of the threshing floor. I have no idea how I'll be okay, but, it, but it's yours. And David, at the end of his life, had learned the lesson that he didn't know earlier in his life. And so he said, no. I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David compensated him. And then he did exactly what he was supposed to do. You know why he did it in the first place? Because there was a law for the kings. Don't try to figure out how strong you are because then you won't need God. It's the essence of the law. It originated in Moses and it existed till the time of David. But after things were messed up in David's kingdom so much, he got so worried about his strength that he decided to tell his commander, I want you to go out and count all of our fighting forces. I need to know how strong I am. I need to know how much I have. I need to know how powerful I am. And though he was warned, he did it anyway. And a prophet came and said, that was a bad move. And so... Should God send the enemy to defeat you? Should God send a plague to afflict you? Or should God send a famine to, to really just dwindle all your supplies? And David said, ah, plague. <laughs> Maybe God will be merciful. And the plague came. And David lost a lot of people. And then at that threshing floor is when he stood and said, oh, God. I got this all backwards. It's not about what I own. It's about what you own. It's not about how strong I am. It's about how strong and merciful and gracious and powerful you are. So I throw myself on your mercy. And God said, oh, very good, David. You finally got it. That's why I want this piece of ground. And metaphorically speaking, the only one standing on that ground at the temple is this widow. The widow's the only one who gets it. She's not worried about what's left. She's not worried about tomorrow. She is just saying, if this God is worth it, then this is what I can give. And so she gives it. I am not announcing a building campaign or paying off a mortgage or anything like that. We have the family meeting. We're doing good, okay? So don't, don't worry. There's no like hook coming. I'm not trying to bait you with something here. Except for this, you don't own anything that you own. Except for this, nothing that you think you have earned through your, your achievement, your long career, everything that you've put together, your record of faithfulness, that retirement of yours, that pension. If you think it's yours, you are as wrong as David and as guilty as David. Jesus is saying, the only one I can command in this entire temple is that widow. Why? Because she's giving out of the fact that she knows that it's not hers, and so she's just giving it. That's why Jesus said right before that point on praying in the Sermon on the Mount, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret 
will reward you. That is the point that he makes over and over in chapter 6. You think you need other people to notice, you missed the whole point. Do it secretly and trust that there's a God who categorizes and ranks things differently the way than the populace does. You're not popular. You're not known. Other people aren't aware. You weren't able to put it online. It's not part of your social media feed. It's okay because God saw and God rewards. That's it. End of the day. God sees, God rewards. That's all we're looking for. And if Jesus is saying, hey, when the word is opened, I want to blow your mind with truths about me, so I need you to listen when I teach. And if there's that danger to worry about how you're seen in a crowd this small or in bigger ones or smaller ones, beware. But if this God asks for something, then don't hold back. The way we're going to close is by hearing about a group of people that have been doing that for a really long time. The church that is growing and gathering that we've tried to support and that we want to give you opportunities to support, uh, they are they're commendable the way that Michael Card says that this woman is commendable. So let me, uh, as we call up Barb and Steve to talk and uh, kind of end our, our time before worship in the missions moment, let me just read this final quote. Michael Card says about this widow, I also love the fact that Jesus points her out as an exemplar to his disciples. In terms of his upside-down value system, where the first or last and the last first, she has just placed a vast fortune in the shofar chest. The last and the least shall be the first and the richest in the kingdom. And Jesus happily points to her as one whose poverty has produced the greatest of gifts. So Barb, Steve, why don't you come on up and tell us a little bit more about all that. Can we welcome up Barb and Steve? Sure exactly who's doing the speaking today, so. I got Barb. Well, thanks, Darren, for